Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Meet the World podcast. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we have a doctor of astronomy who works down at the University of Southampton as an outreach leader. So basically just spreading the awesome work that they're doing down there and educating people about all the things in the sky. I know I had my mind blown, so prepare for yours to be too. Please welcome Dr. Sadie Jones. And we're good, and we're recording. Okay. Oh, my headphones have just come out. <laughs> That's a good start. <laughs> oh, no. It's <laughs> the problem with modern technology. Uh. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. No worries. You get get down here all right and, uh, and everything like that? Yeah, it's fine. Good, good, good. Very good trains. <laughs> Very good. Um, you were just telling me about you guys just got back from Tenerife, you and your students. Yes. And it sounds like you had a pretty cool time. It sounds like I would love to be at that kind of university where they're just like, oh, go off and, and look at the stars for a few days. Yeah, no, it's a really amazing trip and um, I'm really lucky to teach on it. So um, the, the second year students, they get to uh, design a space telescope in the first week that can um, observe gamma rays. And they're working from, uh, with uni- uh, university students from La Laguna in Tenerife and um, in University College Dublin as well. So it's, it's like real science, it's like an international group of people, all different ages, and they all di- bring different like skills to the table, so that's really cool. Um, and yeah, the, just seeing them in the beginning of the week where they like literally haven't got a clue what they're doing, and we've totally chucked them in the deep end. Um, and then their final presentations are absolutely amazing, and like a lot of these like spacecraft could actually fly and do real science if there was you know bottomless amounts of money from ESA. And so we should just we should just quickly say, um, feel free to introduce yourself and everything to our listeners. Okay, so yeah, so I work at University of Southampton as the uh, outreach leader in astronomy, and uh, I've been doing the job for about seven years, and I did my PhD there as well in um, uh, well black holes and radio astronomy, which is quite cool at the moment because that's been all of the news as well. So. Exciting times, and so and so. Um, just getting back to the the trip, the kind of um, the the students uh, are kind of given given a week, and just at the end, what kind of stuff do they they come back with, like new and exciting ways? Because they build it, they like model up a telescope. So yeah, so they uh, they kind of design it, so they can design it in like kind of CAD software or whatever. Um, but it's mainly just thinking about. Uh, so we give each team um, an object that they would be studying. So. The AGN team, which is Active Galactic Nuclei, are trying to design a telescope that can see gamma rays from these type of objects. Um, and then, like in their presentations, they'll detail like how they will observe them and all that kind of thing. So that's in the first week, and then in the second week, we take the astronomers up the mountain, and um, they can choose whatever they want to do. Really, basically, with all these amazing telescopes that you normally have to be um, a kind of researcher at a kind of well, academic level to be able to bid on these telescopes and their time, but we're allowed to just kind of have free access to them for a whole week, so we're very lucky. And so, I don't know how you, you'd even measure gamma rays. How would you do, how would you do something like that? That's, uh, it seems like next level. I, <laughs> I have a very basic knowledge of kind of astronomy and space and everything, um, so you might have to guide me through a lot of this chat. <laughs> okay, so, uh, well, gamma rays are, um, well, you can think of them as like radioactive um, things that can be reduced by, I guess, radiation here on uh, planet Earth. Um, but they naturally occur in space when there's kind of like, um, well, in the terms of AGN, 
they have like um, jets of particles that are accelerated to very high speeds. Um, and from these kind of jets from the edge of a black hole, you would see all types of radiation. So radio, which is the really kind of lowest energy radiation, all the way up to gamma ray, which is the highest energy. And what astronomers do is basically kind of, you're looking at the object in maybe two or more different parts of the, of the radiation bands and like comparing to see kind of what's actually going on. So like for my PhD, I was looking at um, the radio emission from the jet. So this is kind of really kind of, well, what we say was like low energy stuff coming from um, the jet near the base of the black hole. And then also looking at the X-rays, which are coming out, which are much higher energy. So just a little bit lower than gamma ray um, from the actual jet itself. And I'm basically looking to see if there is um, a relationship between the two, because that would tell me about um, like dimensions of the area around the black hole and the dis distance from the disk around the black hole to the jet. So it's all kind of like working out sizes and distances and, and yeah, things like that. Yeah, trying to... Yeah. I mean, we don't really understand... We still don't really understand how uh, well jets work because it, it's kind of weird to think about... If you think of a black hole, you would probably normally think of stuff getting like sucked in and falling into mm, it mm. and this kind of extreme gravity where stuff is spinning and all this kind of thing. And that is true, but be, there's also these jets where material seems to shoot out from very close to the edge of the black hole. Um, and we, I think the best estimates for how that happens is these very strong magnetic fields. But to have a magnetic field that can keep a jet, like as a jet, as a column, mm. all the way out into space for hundreds of light years is, is still really an, a, you know, a big question. So I, I guess that's why I had, I had to do a PhD on that to try and, do my little bit to try and answer that question. Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about <laughs> black holes. If it's like it's your specialty, so Go on then. What, what I'll start with is um, fairly recently, actually, we've had this uh, image that's been plastered all over newspapers, and it's, it's rare I find to get um, you know like front page news. They did it when they found the Higgs, um, but science is very much like buried within newspapers. But I remember a few weeks ago, I think now, where we had the the black hole image, and everyone was like, "It's a black hole," and it was kind of just as a fuzzy image of a bit of orange and, <laughs> and a black spot. And but how significant was that for the science community? Um, I mean, I think it's just, I think you, <laughs> I probably have more appreciation for it because my PhD was on radio astronomy. So I can appreciate the, the, the level of effort that's gone into that, even though it just looks like a bright orange blob with a black yeah. kind of shadow in the middle. Um, so I think, well, obviously it's incredibly important that something like that is given a, you know, a lot of promotion to science. And I think um, the lady who kind of became the kind of poster, you know, person for it was, it, she wasn't obviously the only person involved, but I think it was really nice that, that, you know, she was female and she was quite young as well. So it is good, I think, to promote that to people and say, oh, well, maybe, you know, if she did it, I can do it as well. And it, I think it, it... It shows a lot of collaboration because I think she was actually from like more of a computer science type of background than than more like more of a physical uh, physics background. So, in order to um, with radio astronomy, you're uh, especially if you want to 
see to the such resolution and detail as looking at the actual black hole, um, you need all these radio telescopes to work together, basically. Yeah, because they didn't they use the like one in South America and the Antarctic yeah. and across the world just to pinpoint this one yeah. image. Yeah. So because radio waves are so long, um, in order to get a really good resolution, I guess like similar to what you have in kind of you know the resolution you have on your like iPhone, for example, um, you you need to connect these radio dishes together. Um, there's no other way to get to get such good resolution, mm. to get such fine detail. So by doing by connecting them all together, they will essentially have a radio dish the size of the Earth. Um, but because these are all different um, telescopes in different places and different systems and softwares and things, it's just a very massive task of bringing all that data together. Um, and you have to like correlate it and figure out where all these different waves kind of are in phase and things like that so it's basically giving me flashbacks to my PhD you know <laughs> <laughs> it's like someone's operating a windows and you're like no we're yeah. all mac <laughs> yeah but yeah radio astronomy is really really hard and it some people say it's like a dark a dark art because mm. you don't just get an image you have to do a lot of um like computational analysis and the software does lots of stuff behind the scenes yeah, that yeah. I still don't uh, fully understand. Um, and I I mean, I had a similar image, nowhere near as awesome as that. But for my PhD, I had you know, a blob at the centre, which I knew was associated with a black hole, and then two blobs either side, which could have been a jet. Um, and they were symmetric, so that was a good, um, good evidence for being a jet. But the actual radio wave signal relative to the background noise wasn't very strong so you can't be sure like scientifically that it isn't just kind of noise in the instrument or the radio dish itself that's producing that signal mm -hmm. so so many other things that it could be like yeah know, radio yeah FM and there's whatever, lots of yeah. radio interference and um and a lot of the electronics themselves within the dishes can can interfere and things like that so i I basically wasn't able to write a paper definitively saying I'd found a jet where you know there maybe wasn't supposed to be a jet. Mm -hmm. um, just so you know. And so and so black holes, yeah. Obviously, they have the the jets, um, and I think they're, they're quite interesting because it's one of those things that you kind of first learn about uh, when when you're like introduced to space and it's like yeah. oh there's there's black holes and they just like suck everything in it's like what like what I don't know. oh yeah and there's one at the center of every galaxy you're like yeah oh, what like it's just it's so difficult to understand but how have, have we have we kind of got a um any kind of understanding of what happens in a in a black hole or <laughs> what because there's just sort of no science it just breaks down doesn't it yeah at the limits of the, like the event horizon and everything and it's just it it's very confusing. <laughs> what, yeah. And I guess to you guys as well, like what actually Yeah, yeah, happens. and I think that's basically what drives, I think most scientists is just answering a question that we don't know the answer to. Um, and yeah, I actually think I became interested in black holes because I was shown a Horizon program by my science teacher and it was like back in the day where they had to like wheel the... Wheel, <laughs> wheel the telly, the telly in. The with the VHS and then cue yeah. it up and like, here we go. And it was all about... Um, the fact that they literally just discovered that they thought there was a supermassive black hole at, at the centre of every galaxy. And I remember just being totally gobsmacked by by that, how that could be a thing. Mm. Um, but at the university, there are um, lots of people who study uh, binary black hole systems. So this is smaller black holes that exist within our galaxy. These are the ones that kind of just float around 
Yeah, <laughs> floating. Aimlessly, yeah. You know? Well, we can see um, we can see them within our own galaxy if they're like um, like eating material off a nearby star, and then we can basically see the accretion disk, so the, the disk of material around that's spinning around the black hole. Mm. Um, so there is quite a lot of research that we do at the university where people are trying to kind of investigate relationships that they see in these smaller black holes and their disk and jet and seeing if it scales up to the supermassive black holes. Because it, it, we can see, well, we can see much easier our own supermassive black hole in the Milky Way, but examining them in other galaxies is obviously very hard. So if you can like infer relationships from the small black holes, which are more local to us in our Milky Way, um, that, then it can help you figure out things which are really hard to calculate, like the mass of a black hole, for example. So there's quite a lot of work in that. But yeah, there's still lots of questions. And it still blows my mind. But I guess I'm very lucky now that my job is in outreach because I... You can I, blow other people's minds. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and so has anyone, and has anyone said to you, um, what happens if we go into a black hole? What would so happen? kids say that all the time. Yeah, I bet they do. <laughs> and I have to be careful because I don't want to upset small children. Um, but they all seem very excited about going into black holes. But obviously, well, what we understand would happen is due to the extreme tidal forces if you were able to I don't know survive somehow your body would be what we call spaghettified so it'd be stretched mm. out and it's it's really hard to imagine and I find it really hard to imagine but I think it it's it's like this room we're in now would be being stretched like all of space would be stretched like on every dimension yeah so it's not yeah. like me in this room is just suddenly becoming spaghetti it's like everything is being mm. made into spaghetti even time yes because time is affected, right? Yeah. <laughs> but again, it's I yeah, it blows my mind. I, I heard something. Is it true that if you were to watch someone else go into a or something go into a black hole, you wouldn't ever see them go in? No. Yeah. The like the image of them like would just hover there. Um, and because yeah. their time, well, they're presumably spaghetti. Yeah. The, the time <laughs> that you're seeing is so warped. Yeah. You're just seeing them slow down so much to the point they never go. Yeah. That's exactly right. And there's some interesting research that they do in the maths department at the uni as well, where it's to do with, like... Um, so there's a principle that, like, information can never be lost in the universe. Hmm. Um, and that if stuff goes into a black hole and never is found again, then that kind of violates this principle. So they're trying to investigate if, like, there's a possibility that you can get um, what they call like holograms but it's like a 2d representation of the information at the edge of the black hole which was a 3d thing mm. um and it yeah I, i've seen many talks on it and it's just absolutely mind-boggling uh but it somehow links to quantum computing <laughs> <laughs> that that whole thing i need to do more research on it but it's just it yeah it just baffles me yeah all, all this stuff yeah that... but of course a black hole isn't actually a hole is it it's it's a collapsed yeah. Star. So it's just an area we don't know, but it's in the middle where a star has become so gravitationally. Is this right? Yeah. Well, it's basically like a sphere. Yeah. Like it, if you can imagine whatever it was kind of imploding in on itself. It, yeah. And it's hard because all the pictures you see is more like a 2D kind of like wormhole type mm -hmm. of, you know, going down to the singularity. But it's like the singularity is actually inside the sphere. But thinking like that is just. It's really hard work. <laughs> yeah. I just think of it as like a 
there's like a snooker ball at the middle, which is like infinitely dense. Yeah. Infinitely, but it's so strong that it's sucking the light. Is that something? Yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. I like that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it kind of, it kind of, it's, um, it's so weird to think about, but um, do you think that we'll ever understand it or ever kind of use them as wormholes or whatever, or like <laughs> something? I think, I don't know. I mean, I hope so. I mean, so in like in Stella, have you seen the film on Stella? Yeah, I was gonna. So I was gonna ask you. I'll ask you in a minute about like movie science. Well, if there is like, uh, I mean, there might be. Well, I I believe in aliens because there's so many places in the universe for them to live. There's so many planets, uh, like billions and billions. So assuming that there are aliens, there might be a race of aliens like in Stella who are more technologically advanced, um, and maybe they could share their kind of ability to like warp gravity and make wormholes um i'm not sure if we'll get to that stage just kind of (laughs) (laughs) because of all this going on it kind of it kind of amazes me that in like we've only had science for like 500 years like really like understanding yeah we've done a lot like a a lot yeah yeah. and so you could just have a breakthrough i guess where you, you figure it figure it out yeah. But, like, all the kids, when they go into schools, they all want to know, like... They all want to go, like, visit a black hole, and it's just... They're so far away and trying to explain that, like, humans wouldn't ever be able to live... You know, we wouldn't be able to live long enough to, like, go to, you know, the nearest star, excluding the sun. But, yeah, like, even the sun. <laughs> it's too far. Until we figure out cryo-freezing things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can we do that? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Why not? A well, lot... Disney's hoping we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of the kids would say they would actually go to Mars, and I find that baffling. I don't think I'd want to go. You don't think you would? I think maybe if they could bring me back. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think a lot of... If they of... Could, get, if could get you there, get you back. <laughs> a lot of the uh, kind of more... Is it... I can't remember what it was called. Was it Mars One, where they were going to just send people there and make a reality TV show? Yeah, they had, the, they had the, the, the thing, didn't they, where they were going to send people on a one-way trip and they like selected eight yeah. people and they volunteered and it was like it was like a husband and wife went and like a, a scientist went oh we're gonna go and I, is that still happening because they, and they were d- gonna I put think... them in this pod which is probably about the size of this room and they were I just gonna leave them there to have, die i think they didn't have a lot of funding and they think part of the way they wanted to fund it was by doing like a reality tv show where we'd all just watch them go a bit mad so <laughs> like 80 year, the 80th season of mars Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's really interesting, but at the same time, um, I feel like you have to do it to kind of, you know, like humans have to kind of do it. It's like the moon of our like generation. It so is. It's so... When's it going to happen? I, I don't know. I mean, they keep saying it's going to be like in the next five years, but yeah. I'm, I'm not sure because they've been saying that for a while. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Elon and SpaceX are going to get there first. Yeah, maybe. I, I, I definitely think it's going to happen in our lifetime and it will be so much more epic because even in like 69 when they did the moon people were watching it on tv then yeah and that coverage sucked <laughs> whereas now it's going to be like everyone's going to be on their phone yeah. it's going to be like that's such a moment when i think it's going to take them like a good few months to get it as well so i think okay when i talk to the kids about this like it's not just being an astronaut being you know really good at being an astronaut you have to be like a really kind easy to hang out with person because you're going to be stuck on a spaceship for mm you know, like, eight months or something with these people. So like, it's an interesting, like, human experiment as yeah. well, isn't it? Yeah, I was, um, 
I had a, I had a friend stay over a few years ago, and she's a a, a psychologist for NASA, ah. and she, she's like quite, you know cool. quite a kind of junior position, but she works in the in this team. They kind of are in charge of evaluating astronauts, and so they take them from the Air Force and the Army, and even at the first stage of even before you get to like astronaut school, yeah. whatever it is there's so many evaluations to yeah, like figure out if you're like a normal person and you're not yeah. going to go crazy and like do yeah, these, yeah. you know like sci-fi movies where they get like the evil spaceman yeah i mean i don't know it's really interesting and she and she was saying that there's there's yeah like even just like simple tests like a questionnaire they'll say oh how do you react to this situation they'll just bin like half the people just because of the results of this yeah I can imagine. questionnaire but like it must it must be it would take like three months to get to how long does it take to get to mars I, I think I thought it was more like nine months. Oh, but that, yeah, I yeah. think that was for, that's, how, that's how long it took Curiosity to get there. So I don't know. I mean, it might take longer for humans. It's so. like a gap year. Just <laughs> more gap year to Mars. People will be doing that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just the it's just the expense to bring everyone back. I guess, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, what have we we've put Curiosity on Mars, the Mars rover? We've got loads of stuff on Mars. Yeah, I think Mars is... Also, I mean, I think Mars is is being in terms of like analyzing what's on Mars. We, I think we've pretty much. You know, we've done that. Yeah. But I guess Mars is like the only place I think we could, you know, send humans now. So yeah, and, and we have to try. But we, we, we couldn't just kind of live there, could we, really? We'd have to all build pods. Yeah. And kind of... Like in the film The Martian, which is also really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I was going to ask you when you mentioned Interstellar, um, do you, can you watch sci-fi movies and not... Not get annoyed, or yeah, you're like, this is I, unrealistic. What was the one where there was a film? Oh, is, is it the day after tomorrow? Where like the neutrinos are like evolving or something, <laughs> and that but that was right at the beginning. So I kind of think I got a bit annoyed at that because like I'm pretty sure they don't do that. Yeah, they're like just make up science <laughs> to fit the plot. Um, and is it sunshine as well? Uh, which is quite bad. But they like go inside the sun, and there's like this devil guy inside it, and. It's, they try to like reignite the sun. Ah, uh, yeah. With, well, the like, whole premise fusion. of that movie is like the sun's dying. Let's yeah. go restart Let's it. Let's go or restart. Yeah. So I think, but I think, I guess, I think what I'm trying to say is that sci- the science the films are getting really good. Like Interstellar, for example, is like the only one. I think one of the first films where they'd actually worked with like actual like astrophysical models of black hole, and they, you know, the scientific advisor was an expert in black holes, and and the graphical design was kind of with that in mind very much so. So they've actually got like a scientific paper about about Gargantua, the black hole, and how, you know, it, that is what it would look like, basically. Mm. So I think, yeah, I think, I guess the film industry's getting cleverer and people... So, yeah, I don't get I don't get too annoyed. I'm actually... I think because my job is outreach, I'm a bit more maybe laid back than if... <laughs> Yeah. If it was like my serious research and it's like you've you've done this wrong. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just a great way to get, you know, the black hole physics out there. Yeah. Yeah. So Yeah, I guess I guess they can kinda of like make stuff up and all yeah. that stuff just for entertainment. Yeah. I think because I think Gargantua the black hole, the actual like um the thing that the scientists first came up with, which was more realistic to what it actually looked like, is that it it would be a lot kind of like darker and it wouldn't be symmetrical because the black hole is actually spinning hmm. but i think it was the christopher nolan the director he yeah. was basically like you know it kind of looks a bit boring and dull so they've like made it look a bit more flary and orangey and but it's like you know that's okay because 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's the thing that a lot of space movies do when they have external shots of the spacecraft and it's like, and it's like, you know, just not making any sounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then you do that in something like Sunshine, uh, Danny Boyle had it where where his it was just all silent on, yeah. the, on the outside. And you're just watching it and thinking, oh, it looks rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because we've built up this expectation yeah. that it should be. And I think I... I think it's why I'm good working with kids because I have such a short attention span. So it's like, I guess, and like in today's age, we're just so used to everything being so fast and information and stuff. So I think even if there's like pauses in a film or it's going a bit slow, I'm just like, I'm bored now. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then like the whole, the, the whole theory of, of the whole like scientific community, I guess, is, is based uh, on, on that kind of longer form. Research yeah. and, and kind of aren't they? Have they just finished upgrading the Large Hadron Collider after like eight years or something? Or is that right? I'm not sure. I, yeah. yeah, I mean, I I've been well, not working with people there, but like there's people who work with the Large Hadron Collider in at the university as well. Cool. Um, and yeah, like particle physics just absolutely blows my mind. I still don't really <laughs> understand. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just. It's just so amazing that we have these, you know, these places where you're just still discovering stuff all the time. Like mm -hmm. it hasn't already even been discovered, as because like we have the standard model of particle physics, but there's still like so many unknowns and things. But I think for the Large Hadron Collider, they have to keep kind of up in the energy, so I guess they can bash the particles together even faster. Yeah. So for for and I don't really know much about it, and maybe we're we're, <laughs> we're together on that. But um, it, they they it's like a Huge ring, yeah, uh, underneath like France and Switzerland. It's like twenty-eight, twenty-seven kilometers long, yeah. And they just fire stuff at each other. How does it work? I, can't, I don't really. I don't really so get it. Uh, they have uh, protons, which is just from like a little gas of hydrogen that's been, you know, the protons are really small. Um, so they fire the protons uh, together uh, using, I guess, just magnetic fields that are all the way around the, around the whole ring, and then there's like four detectors. Uh, which are each kind of looking at different types of science within the collisions. And you, you basically, the, there's detectors all the way around the ring in, in these um, kind of big detector things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not explaining this very well. Um, no, I'm understanding it. I'm understanding it. But yeah, so basically when they collide, you can see the tracks of all the, the kind of smaller particles that come out. Um, and then particles that come off from them because you're continually giving the particles more energy. Mm -mm. Um, so, but they, they have a similar problem to what we have in astrophysics now is that we we are able to kind of collect all this data um, quite easily, but we haven't got the ability, like computers haven't got enough like file storage physically to keep all that data. So there's lots of um, kind of people within... Um, CERN and at the LHC who were like their job is basically just kind of trying to write code to decide which data to get rid of so that they only keep the stuff that might have you know the the cool science mm. in it because there's um, just so much going on in that yeah. explosion or not explosion meeting of the protons yeah and like we have um we have radio telescopes now which they don't they don't actually like point at the sky they're looking at all the sky all the time basically mm. um, which is really cool because if there's like a supernova explosion on one side of the sky you don't have to like wait for your telescope to move around to it and you, so you don't miss like the initial bit where it gets really bright and that's where all the cool science is mm. um, so you have the data but you to, to, to keep saving 
all that data from the whole sky like every minute it's just it's just too much like yeah. it's literally i think the new telescope uh, the square kilometer array is like it's going to be like all the internet's traffic in like hours of data Whoa. so the the real challenge is trying to like figure out how to figure out which data to keep and which to delete because it might be it might be the case that you look back and say oh there was this really cool thing that happened in the sky on this date two weeks ago mm. it'd be really cool if we could see it but actually we've deleted it because we had to because we didn't have enough like hard drive space do you yeah know what I mean? yeah so it's like a, i guess a computer engineering problem that we're getting on we're looking at too much of the sky yeah like that's, so what the square the square array is that the is square that... kilometer array is um basically it's a really it's um it's lots of radio dishes and what are called uh dipole arrays which are basically just like four wires <laughs> that come out of a pole right which basically is a similar kind of idea to the antenna on the back of a car basically uh -huh. so they can they can detect radio waves from all the way around um and they're all looking at kind of different frequencies where we know there is interest in stuff happening. Um, um, and I guess the cool thing about these is that they're over um, a large part of Australia and South Africa, and they're all the same design. So you don't have so many problems like we had with the, um, the, the black hole picture that was made recently, mm. where that was all different types of uh, radio telescope, which makes it more complicated. So because the square kilometer array is all the same design, and it's all the same kind of infrastructure and, you know, internet connection or whatever. Um, it makes it a bit easier. But again, that is still in the design process at the moment. And I guess one of the main problems is this, there's going to be too much data. Yeah, just trying to like <laughs> filter it all out and look up at everything. Yeah. But, yeah, but I mean, hopefully yeah. the discoveries they've made to make this picture of the actual black hole, it that, that's like a, that was like a major kind of, going forward in like how we bring all the radio data together so yeah, yeah. we're getting there it's like science is one of those things that can like bring nations together it's like one of those only things where it doesn't really matter about you know like yeah politics or yeah whatever. definitely just, yeah people trying to look up and and figure out what's going on up there yeah um i was gonna i was gonna mention probably you know way more about it than me but there wasn't wasn't there um the the black hole collision in the last like the maybe... gravitational waves well, I was going to go on to that, <laughs> but um, the wasn't there two black holes co like that collided or something, and we picked it up on a on a telescope, or have I completely made this up? Um, so I think yeah. I, well, the what am I talking about? I, I think is it, I think you're talking about the gravitational waves. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, no, why not? <laughs> Which is like the Nobel thing that Kip yes. won his thing for a few years ago. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. So um... I'm so lost on the gravitational waves. Please explain. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm not an expert on this, but um, yeah, so basically, like, so kind of neutron stars, black holes, things can collide in space, but you certainly if, have two, if two black holes collide and they're just bl black and they don't have any kind of accretion disk or anything else, if they collide, there's no real way you can see them in terms of um, like radio waves or gamma rays or optical radiation. You wouldn't see anything. Mm. But due to kind of Einstein's theories, you would expect these things called gravitational waves, which is like a ripple in space-time. Um, but if two black holes collide many millions of years away, the actual, like, effect you see here is, you know, really, really small, like, smaller than the human hair. So they have these large interferometers in, in the US, I think, called LIGO. Um, 
and they're basically just like firing a laser um, in one direction and then at 90 degrees to that direction. And again, I don't when the gravitational wave passes through that like interferometer system yeah, with the lasers, yeah. um, it changes the the path length of the light. So right. you can like you can detect that difference and you can I don't know how they actually like point it so they know it's coming from that area of sky. But then you can, from the difference, you can actually um, figure out the energy of the of the um, the gravitational wave. So from Einstein, we know E equals m c squared. So for example, if two black holes combined, and they're both say I don't know five solar masses, you would expect um, the 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 black hole that's left to be ten. They just they just combine. Because combine, it's like yeah. yeah. But um, when I, I don't know how they would have done it, but they must have actually seen some. Um, I think they've done it with neutron stars, where they have actually seen radiation in other forms that you can detect with other telescopes, and then you can see um, the mass of the two neutron stars combined that, that's left over. Mm. So if we were thinking of it in terms of neutron stars, if they're both five as well. Um, then again, you'd expect the thing they combined to be to be 10. But what they actually saw based on the light was that there was mass missing. So say three solar masses, which is really, you know, three times the sun has disappeared. And that violates like energy principles. So basically, um, they, I guess, in they had a theory <laughs> based on Einstein that these this missing mass has been sent across the universe as as energy in the form of a gravitational wave, but that's all well and good until you can prove it. Yes. So now they're, they're detecting a lot of these, um, these you know, gravitational waves and they're from really big collisions, so like black holes or neutron stars. Mm. And based on the, the interferometer in the US and how much these lasers, I don't know, <laughs> the light changes, they can tell that they are actually detecting that gravitational wave because the numbers kind of add up. And that's that's like the new thing, isn't it? That's like the in vogue thing in science at the moment. That's the kind of latest yeah. way to kind of test things. It's that gravitational waves. I mean, I guess it's just, it's, I, I, I mean, I was taught GR when I did my undergrad in Cardiff and. So it's just filtering through to the normal people. Yeah. Like no, who don't know I anything mean, about like, science at the moment. So <laughs> I, that was when I learned about gravitational waves, but I, to be honest, like, I didn't think we were ever going to detect them. So it's actually just really cool and like surprising even to scientists that actually we have. Mm. And I think it just, yeah, it just shows dedication for people who like really do, um, well, I don't know if believe is the right word, but it's like you, you just, you have a goal and you kind of, you really want to try and try and do it. Cause yeah. like, you know, even with the, the picture of the black hole, like I was pretty content with my picture knowing the black hole was there. It just being a blob of light. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, having the kind of, like the drive and conviction to be like, no, I want to actually see the black hole. Yeah, it's really yeah, cool. Yeah. And so, you you when you do these outreach sessions, I bet uh, I bet one of the things that people ask you is probably like, how big is the universe? Because there's a lot of zeros on the end of some numbers, and it just kind of blows my mind, and I can't really understand it, and it's it's just yeah, it's nuts. I think, yeah, and it's not just how big is it, it's like what is it expanding into and like how is it expanding? 
So we have um, quite a few outreach um, kind of projects that work around dark energy. <laughs> and dark energy is this thing which is actually accelerating the universe. So if you think of the universe as expanding, it isn't actually expanding at like a constant rate. It's actually accelerating, which means something is giving it energy. Huh. And we just call not that dark. From, not from the Big Bang. Like it's, it's yeah, still it, getting faster. Yeah. So like galaxies that are further away are moving faster. And it, it doesn't, it, <laughs> we don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, so there are some researchers who are trying to look at supernova. So these are exploding stars and um, a certain type of supernova called the type 1A. Um, well, they basically always have the same brightness physically in space. So then if you know how bright something is really in space, um, you can, um, the only difference between how bright it really is and the brightness you measure here on the earth is due to the distance. Right. So just things that are far away are dimmer. Um, so I guess it's quite a simple idea, but they're, they're using supernova that go off in kind of distant galaxies as a way to measure them really accurately. And then if you can measure really accurately how far away, um, the galaxies are, then you can get a kind of better handle on this expansion and all the directions it's going in and things like that. So I guess the main, the main goal from looking at these supernova now is trying to figure out what effect dark energy is having on them. But again, I'm not sure it's going to reveal like what dark energy actually is. Yeah. But I don't know. I could be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just, that's just another mystery that also like dark matter. Yeah. And what's that? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, dark matter is like, and again, it is hard to not get these two confused. And we've done a project with um, some kids on this as well. And I think because they both have the word dark in front of them, we Seems just, the same. Yeah, we yeah. confuse them. But a dark matter is like, um, if you think of galaxies, so not thinking on such a big scale of the universe, just a galaxy, then you would expect that... Um, so if you have all the materials spinning, you would expect that the further you go out from the galaxy, um, stuff slows down and stuff is spinning um, really, really fast, close to the centre. And the, you would expect basically kind of a gradual decrease. But what we actually see is that it kind of um, does kind of gradually uh, get slower quite quickly, but then it's just kind of plateaus. And the only way you could get that kind of plateau in the speed of stuff in in a galaxy is if there's extra matter like actual physical stuff so this could be so it could be the dark matter is actually some kind of particle that we can't detect with our current technology um and that would be at giving gravity to these outer planets and and systems that would be pulling them in that direction and kind of making so, them increase in speed uh, you just can't see the particles? So the, so the dark... Well, I, I don't know. Again, I'm not an expert, but I think... When I think of dark matter, I just think of it in terms of... Um, it, it's kind of much more bigger, and it has mass, and I just think of it in terms of inside a galaxy. When you're thinking of galaxies within the universe actually moving away from each other, then that's all to do with, like, kind of dark energy mm -hmm. and this expansion in all directions, which again is weird because if you think of the Big Bang, I always think of it like being from a point and everything's moving outwards. 
but like there is no center because it's like everything's moving in all directions and it's just all very weird i remember what my <laughs> physics teacher gave me uh, showed us a really good um uh, kind of demonstration uh, when we were in high school and he gave us all balloons and he said blow up the balloon and we kind of blew it up and he goes right where did it go up, blow up from and we couldn't re- we couldn't really say because it was yeah. kind of everywhere. It kind of yeah. just went at the same time. And I loved that. And I always remembered that. And it was really annoying because I was like, <laughs> well, there's no centre. Uh, but it kind of just went all at, all at once. Um, yeah. But what, what are your thoughts on, I mean, it's kind of like a widely accepted thing now. The Big Bang was like the beginning of everything, the beginning yeah. of time itself. But I think there's there's thoughts now, isn't there, that because at that one point, there was almost no time as well. Yeah, that's where time begins. Yeah, so... So you can't think of before. You can't think that. of before, but maybe it was always... Maybe it's infinite. Maybe, like, maybe it was always there. I, I don't know. I've not really read much about this recently, but I think... I just think of it... I remember when I was doing, like, quantum mechanics and finding it all very hard. Yeah. But <laughs> you have this kind of um, principle where things can just suddenly appear... So I guess I always just think of it as just like there was nothing and then there was something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which again is just really mind-boggling. But that happens at a subatomic level, right? Especially near the edge of black holes. Yeah. They like they're just stuff stuff appears. Is that right? On the on the edge they're just they're like little kind of quarks or something. I think you're thinking of Hawking radiation. Maybe. But I'm not sure if if stuff can just (laughs) appear. Because that's why it's weird. It kind of pops out of one place and pops back into another place. It kind of doesn't appear, but it kind of like pops and goes around, no? I'm making (laughs) making up science is what I'm doing now. I'm not sure. (laughs) But yeah, I don't, I don't, it's just, yeah, it's such a big question to think about. (laughs) I don't know. I I think sometimes my brain just gets really full. But, But I think it's okay. Like I try and like make this, point to the kids like it's okay that we you know we don't know all the answers and that's kind of why we need them to be interested in science mm-hmm. um i don't think it's a problem to say we we don't really know yeah <laughs> and that's like i think that's a good thing in in just life in general to be like i don't actually know the answer and yeah I'm, I'm kind of being upfront about it and saying yeah i don't know we don't yeah. we don't know all the answers and like look where we've come in so long and yeah well, maybe we'll get the answers one day yeah, yeah, we don't know. No. <laughs> what do what 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 do we not know besides <laughs> dark matter and dark energy and kind of is there stuff that's so like, many cause, things because the um because Einstein kind of predicted all these things and now they've yeah come into fruition. Like, is there anything else that we're we're searching for? Um, I don't know. Other than aliens and life, <laughs> like one of the planets, maybe. What are the chances that we find that? Oh, I don't know. Again, um. So we find, so we have like something called the Kepler telescope, which is finding lots of uh, exoplanets. So these are planets in their, um, well, well, could be the habitable zone. So assuming that they're like Earth-like, um, they could have uh, water on them. And, you know, the, the, the Earth-like planet we know with water on it, <laughs> Earth, is, uh, you know, teeming with life. So... And, yeah, so we've basically found, you know, thousands and thousands of those just in our Milky Way. So, I mean, I, I feel like there's probably almost certainly aliens just in our Milky Way forgetting the rest of the galaxies. But, again, it, it's just everything is it's just so far away. Mm. So one of the nearest stars which could have a habit- habitable zone is, like, four light years away. But that's, like, 
yeah. 24 trillion miles or something like that. So <laughs> it, it would take us, you know, longer than a human lifetime to get there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are places where we send signals <laughs> into different directions of space. And all our radio and TV broadcasts, like since the 60s, I guess, have, you know, they have been going out into the atmosphere. So there was a joke someone made where, like, they've, like, they've watched Hollyoaks something and then they haven't bothered <laughs> to come to Earth. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> decided it's not worth the bother. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Like you said, in our, in our galaxy, there's so many exoplanets, like Earth-like planets, that it would it would make sense if there there is because almost when life began 3.8 million billion years ago um as almost as soon as the planet cooled from this kind of rocky lavery mess there was kind of single-celled organisms that kind of yeah. popped into existence and so it kind of makes sense that there should be others yeah maybe. but i guess it's weird then that maybe there hasn't there isn't life on mars because we found water there I mean, it doesn't have an atmosphere, but it's, you know, similar shape to mm. us, mm. similar size. Um, so, like, then there's a series that there was life on Mars, like, a long, long time ago. Um, and then for some other, you know, for whatever reason, there isn't any more. Mm. But I still feel like you'd find some evidence or fossils or something, if that was the case. Mm. But I think we, when we think of... Um aliens <laughs> we think of kind of like human-like yeah creatures don't we but i think that if we do ever find anything it will just not be like that at all will it no yes it'll just be kind of like yeah it could be very simple like you know worms or yeah some kind of life like that yeah or they could be way more technologically advanced than us maybe they're already here and we just don't know i don't know that's another theory isn't it <laughs> that, they, that they've advanced so much that they're just looking down and being like yeah yeah. They haven't really sort. Yeah, you know, they're fighting amongst themselves. They're, Give them a bit more time. Yeah, global warming or like they're they're messing up the planet. They don't really know. We'll give yeah. them like a million years and we'll we'll come back to them. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they could help us out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's but there's so like there's so many things that have come from science. One of the one of the things that annoys me when people say like, "Oh, why are you interested in like, all of that stuff?" It's like pointless. It's not doing anything. But science has given us so much, hasn't it? Yeah, there's so many spin-offs, and I think, we like, especially in astronomy, we get asked this question a lot, like, what's the point of, you know, looking up the stars and all this, because, you know, you're not helping people on the Earth. But they're, from, like, trying to, you know, extend and, like, expand technology to be able to look at, like, you know, exploding black holes or whatever, they, I think it was some Australian scientists that they wanted to look at it or figure out if exploding black holes were a thing, Um and they needed, again, it was in the very early days of radio astronomy, so they really needed to have very accurate um, kind of location for where their actual radio dishes were in order to kind of triangulate the signal and get good resolution. And the radio dishes themselves were, I think, connected by radio waves. And almost like accidentally, they would invented the, the system we use in routers in your home to be able to kind of detect the you know, the Wi-Fi from various different rooms. So they patented that technology and everyone's like, oh, did they go out and buy, like, you know, Ferrari? <laughs> and they didn't. They, I think they plowed all their money that they got from their, their invention into, into science. Yeah. And then there's another one with uh, the, the technology that, well, the students actually used to design their telescopes in, in Tenerife to look at gamma rays. Um, that uses big blocks of <laughs> tungsten, 
because yeah. um, the only way to image gamma rays, because they're so energetic, is to kind of almost like block them with a, what we call a coded mask made of tungsten. And then the kind of shadow or whatever, or the projection onto the detector from these gamma rays passing, that can pass through the holes in the tungsten um, tells us about where the signal's coming from. So that technology was, you know, invented, you know, good few years ago to look at gamma rays in space. And then a few years later, the medical industry wanted to be able to do it for med medical imaging. And they, you know, they wanted this technology and realized that the astronomers would be doing it for years. So there is all these spin-offs. And yeah, I think it's, it, it that's what science is about as well. So... Yeah, I don't. I don't think it should stop being funded. Yeah, obviously. yeah. And there's so, there's so many things that we take for granted, like uh, the way you found your way here, like GPS. I assume. On your yeah, phone. yeah, exactly. All these technologies, like it, like I, I, I still don't understand really how my phone works <laughs> and everything. Like, it just no. blows my mind. But it's all. Yeah, and I think the CCD like cameras, like cameras that are in all our phones, is they were first used to take photos of space. Like that's how that technology first came to be a thing. Hmm. Interesting. So, so what are your thoughts on where this is all, where this is all going, where all this kind of technology and space travel and stuff? Do you, do you think we're going to be like an interplanetary species? And I don't know. I mean, I hope so. It'd be really cool. Yeah, like colonize, colonize the moon first, <laughs> and then maybe spread out. Because I, I always kind of did. I did used to want to be an astronaut. Yeah. Like, yeah, I was going to say, what kind of got you into? Yeah, so I think, well, I, I like my, te my teacher probably was the first kind of thing into astronomy where, where she showed this video in the class, <laughs> wheeled in. Yeah. Um, but I, I can remember in primary school, we could do a project on anything we liked and I chose space yeah. <laughs> and remembered focusing really on like astronauts and things like that. Um, and I really love like flying or being on planes. So I think I was just, I had in my mind that I was going to be an astronaut. So I didn't really kind of, have an idea that I wanted to do science at the time. I just wanted to be an astronaut. Mm. But I think I realised that because I've got, like, asthma and <laughs> bad eyesight, that that <laughs> dream probably wasn't <laughs> going to be realised. And I don't know, now as I get older, I, I personally just, like, have the fear. Like, I went climbing the other day and could only get, like, halfway up the wall because yeah. just, just you got, you know, yeah, yeah. as you get older, you get more scared. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's really cool. But I don't know if I'd want to go and live on the moon or mars yeah, yeah and so that kind of your early fascination with with all that and your, your teacher kind of wheeling that in just literally just lit a spark and well i don't know because i think I, that happened but then i guess like most teenagers i changed my mind a lot so i actually wanted to be like an interior designer or a graphic designer because i feel like i'm quite creative and i didn't really I didn't really know that there was any jobs you could do with physics and maths even though i i did really enjoy them and i i did well in them um, so I did A-levels in like physics, maths, computing and art with an idea to do in the computing and art type of jobs mm -hmm. because I was like, you know, computers are the future. And <laughs> but I, I, it just shows the importance of teachers because my art and um, computing teachers were nowhere near as good or enthusiastic as my physics and maths teachers. Yeah. So I, I then realised that, you know, there was... Because I didn't really know what I wanted to do at the time, but it was like phys doing physics degree wouldn't like close any doors then and I could still kind of I don't know I still kind of saw like I started to see like the creative element in kind of doing science um so yeah 
So I, I wasn't one of these astronomers that's like always known that I wanted to do it and had like a telescope. I don't think I actually looked at a telescope and looked at the planets till I was teaching on the Tenerife field trip, <laughs> which is a bit embarrassing to admit. Um, but yeah. But it's amazing, isn't it? When you, I, I, I like, I'd love to have a decent telescope. You could probably tell everyone what the best telescope to get is because I have no idea. But yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, you know, own one and, and kind of look up and... Yeah, well, not you... around here, though, too much light pollution. <laughs> well, we use... I mean, we have the really big telescopes in, in Tenerife on the mountain, which are, like, you know, um, like 80-centimetre mirrors and stuff. But um, we have, like, a small mirror... Well, a smaller one that you could actually buy if you were quite rich-ish. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, £3,000, I think, a Celestron, which is about a 10- or 12-inch mirror in it. Um, but it's quite cool for me and the students because you have to, like... You have to set the telescope up. You have to align it with the with the North Star, mm. and it, you you get away with it without actually knowing that much because you just have to align it to like two stars, and then you can just tap in the coordinates or tap in look at Jupiter, and it just and it just does it, it just does it. Cool. But it 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 does just being outside actually I guess under the stars, not being in like a telescope dome. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, yeah, when, you, when you're outside, you can really see how it works and kind of you get more of an understanding of how the telescope actually is aligning itself because you have to tell it exactly where you are in Tenerife and all that kind of thing. Right, right, right. I bet you've, uh, I bet out in, in Tenerife, unlike here, uh, there were some amazing kind of skies. Because I, I, I love it when I, whenever I go back to the countryside and like visit my parents and stuff, uh, you just completely forget about like almost your place in the universe really when you look up yeah and you're like oh, okay right yeah i get it yeah, yeah. I mean, whereas in like never in london no. it's just kind of <laughs> no. i love looking up at the sky and all that kind of stuff but yeah i bet you've seen some amazing yeah so in in tenerife is really good because we're on mount tidy so we're above what's called the inversion layer so all the clouds basically kind of like stop uh. below us so you get really amazing sunrises and sunsets as well which is awesome um but yeah, you can see the Milky Way and there's like hundreds and hundreds more stars than you'd be able to see mm. um, because you don't have, I guess when you're high up as well, you don't have so much um, atmosphere or air between you and the and the stars. So you don't get all the twinkling, which would affect your data. Uh, okay. So is that is that one of the best kind of places to, to go see the stars? Um, where, so where's I've the best actually, place you've kind of experienced? I've actually been lucky enough to go to Chile as well, oh, which wow, is where yeah. like the VLT... Uh, is um, and observed there and again it was really good I mean it wasn't like way way better than uh, Tenerife but <laughs> I think um, Tenerife can still have more kind of probably like rain and Chile is a lot drier so you're just more likely throughout the year to have have good um, good viewing of the sky yeah yeah but yeah and so yeah. have you have you seen any cool cosmic events because <laughs> I remember uh, Halley's Comet I think Came came part maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't Halley's comet. It was another comet when I was like nine years old and like got woken up in the middle of the night and like yeah. taken up to the village green made to look up and I was like, Oh yeah, what is it? <laughs> I, I saw the solar eclipse that happened in the nineties. I remember seeing that. Um but not really. I I've gone out and seen like a few meteor showers. Mm. Um but yeah, personally, I haven't really seen anything that amazing. But when I was in Chile we were observing supernova, so even though again you, you take it for granted when you're in like a big warm control room mm. and you have these massive telescopes. But yeah, I mean, these were supernova that, that were going off or had gone off recently. So big explosions in space. So that's quite cool. Um, 
and we were at the telescope uh, basically like classifying or like kind of fitting a graph to the shape of this kind of supernova like curve like in real time so that felt really cool because I'm not like um, I'm not an optical astronomer I'm a radio astronomer so when I did my PhD all my data was just already there on my computer mm-hmm. um, so I, if it wasn't for me doing my outreach job I guess I wouldn't have actually got to do any kind of optical astronomy which is what people usually think about where you're in like a control room and the telescopes yeah, yeah. moves and everything yeah yeah so, so, so what like with the uh that celestion celestion celestron celestron <laughs> one what, what kind of what kind of could you see with that you can um, see jupiter pretty easily or? yeah so, you, so yeah. one of the students actually did a project on jupiter um so you can see like the bands on jupiter wow. and the difference so i think two of the students actually did investigation of like uh, one of them did like rotational velocity of Jupiter just by looking at the actual kind of bands and how they move or like how you know where the red spot was mm. <laughs> previously um, and then the other one actually used um, like a spectrograph so this it basically like the light instead of getting like an image of Jupiter it splits up uh, the light um, like a prism basically like a little prism inside um, and you can see what kind of elements are in Jupiter's atmosphere. Mm. So that's quite cool. And yeah, you just did that on a quite, you know, quite a small yeah. telescope. You can also do stuff like uh, take pictures of nebula and things like that. So we have different filters on the telescope as well. So they can make different like color images and things. Yeah, yeah. And what's on Jupiter is pretty nasty, isn't it? It's not very hospitable. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, well, it's a gas giant. So yeah. we, we probably wouldn't go there. But people think that you could like because it's gas that you could like fly through it but the gravity of jupiter because like it's through so, the, yeah yeah <laughs> because I, but i guess that makes sense in a way because if you think of gas you know on the planet earth yeah, yeah. you walk in through it all the time but um no the gravity of jupiter itself would you know the, the tidal forces would just mm-hmm. crush you well way before you got kind of anywhere near yeah, it probably yeah, yeah. but jupiter's really um useful well it it's helped us out many times isn't it in our kind of human story because it just takes all the asteroids yeah yeah that's true yeah they all get attracted to that so um i think there are lots of like well there are telescopes which are obviously looking at the sky specifically for um asteroids that are heading towards us oh no um and they can pick up pretty much everything i think almost certainly like the size of a car and bigger they would do would Uh, do harm and an asteroid the size of a car would would yeah it would do some serious damage really but um (laughs) What would it do? Just I wipe think us like, out. <laughs> I guess it depends how fast it was going. Uh, does that make a difference? How if it kind of just slowly? Yeah. Plopped down. So and... the speed, but I mean, they you would expect them to break up in the atmosphere as well into smaller yeah. bits. But then sometimes the smaller bits are not. If you break it up into smaller bits, then you don't actually know which direction all these smaller bits are going to go mm. and the damage they're going to do. At least if it was like one big thing, you and it yeah. was you know gonna hit the ground you could take precautions yeah but there's some, really, up there. there's some really cool yeah like so people think of like bruce willis and like nuking it but then that would just make lots of smaller ones and like i said that you'd have a problem knowing where they were going to go and if yeah. they were still going to hit it um but there's some cool stuff where you just use um you just use light from the sun to like push it out the way so someone said about like um just send some white paint up there and explode the white paint near to the asteroid <laughs> and the white side would yeah. be basically pushed by by the, by the light. Ah, uh, because of like the absorption of the light or something. Or? Yeah, it's kind of like, um, I guess it's more to do with like reflection. Like the light almost like pushes. 
Right, right. Okay, I see. So it would like, like, I think it's a similar similar idea to like how a solar sail works. It just, it just pushes it. So you wouldn't have to have a big nuclear explosion. Which just is... need a couple of paintbrushes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. But are we? Um, I read somewhere. Are, are we uh, in danger of anything like that happening soon? Do we need to all start going back to college and learning how to paint? Because I said <laughs> in the in, in the twenty thirties, there's like yeah. we're passing through an area of oh, I didn't actually know that of danger or something like part of the part of the Kuiper Belt becomes closer or something and. Yeah. Or some, and there's like a, there'll be like a lot of meteor showers, and yeah. potentially one of them might hit us. Or something. <laughs> Have you heard about that? I mean, I haven't heard about it, but I think just okay. yeah, it's best that people don't worry about these things. There are there are obviously lots of people looking at the sky all the time. So, yeah, yeah. and even like amateur astronomers pick these kind of things up as well, like because they you know there's constantly people looking. So hopefully there will be enough time to you know take action. Awesome. Good to know. <laughs> what um I was going to say, what has changed for me? since I started learning about this back in school, was uh, the main thing is, like, what happened to Pluto? <laughs> well, what's the deal with that? I so think we, we got that one wrong. I think, like, well, a lot of kids who we go into see in schools, they don't actually know about the Pluto thing because, you know... It's it, not taught it's it. It's always been... No, they just... it's There's always just eight planets now, so all the rhymes that we learn, like the mnemonics and things, they don't have Pluto in. Have they got any new? Have they got new ones? Yeah, so the reason why we downgraded Pluto is because we we now call it a dwarf planet. So it's still there, still a planet. (laughs) Um, It's just that Pluto is um, well, it isn't kind of totally spherical like the other planets, and it doesn't have its own um, kind of what we call like a clear orbit. So it has like. Well, Neptune, if you look at the actual orbit of Pluto, it's kind of a bit weird and not in the same plane as the rest of the planets. So the astronomers basically decided that to be called a planet, you have to be kind of a spherical object and it has to have its own kind of clear orbit where it's like the only thing in its orbit. So they've also found other planets or dwarf planets which are bigger than Pluto in the asteroid belt so I think there's ones like called Ceres and Aries. There's a few of them. <laughs> like Make Make, I think is one of the names of one of them. Um, but again, so these these are... Now our telescopes are getting better, I guess. We're just observing more and more of these things, which are really big. And I guess if they're bigger than Pluto, you can't really have Pluto still remaining a planet and then not call these things planets. But if they're in the asteroid belt and they're surrounded by, you know, other rocks, so they don't have their own clear orbit and they're not, you know, they're not spherical, so they don't have enough gravity to kind of be a sphere. So they've just, basically, because it would have just ended up with us having like, you know, 20 or so planets in the yeah, in yeah, the solar yeah. system. And they're so, all just kind of these rocky asteroid things. Yeah, so they yeah. basically just made it easy. They just kind of, to make it easier, <laughs> we have... The, the eight planets in the solar system now and these additional dwarf planets. Mm. And I guess we'll be finding more and more as our telescopes get better. Yeah. And there's and there's um, the the asteroid belt, isn't there, on the outside that just kind of goes around the outside of the solar system? Is that right? So the, the asteroid belt's between uh, Mars and Jupiter. Right, right. And then I think, yeah, you mentioned the Kuiper belt yeah. and there's like the Oort cloud and they're all like further what out. They? What, that, that's, what, what are so, they? The, I think, I think, I can't remember which comes first. I think it's the Kuiper belt is like, if you just, yeah, basically just like a ring of asteroids, but further out than Pluto. Yeah. But then the Oort cloud is like a cloud. So it's like almost like a spherical thing 
over the top of the whole solar system. Wow. But it's you like know, a gaseous kind of. No, it's well, it's not. It's called a cloud, but it's just lots of rocks. Huh. But it, it, they call it a cloud because it, it's like around the whole thing. It's not like a belt where it's just like a ring. Mm -hmm. huh. So there is lots. There is lots of stuff out there in the solar system. Yeah. <laughs> lots of rocks, yeah. but they're all, I guess, gravitationally bound in some way at the moment. So they're not don't really pose any danger. But I think is it in the series Expanse on Netflix, which is really good. Um, they are like there's like a little uh, base on series. In the, which is in the asteroid belt, I think. Yeah. And they, like, mine in the asteroid belt for, like, minerals in this future kind of civilization. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense because that there is there is so many resources out there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I reckon that um, will be the kind of future of, you know, we've talked about landing on the moon and stuff earlier, but um, I think that definitely will be... We'll, we'll start getting onto the, all these asteroids and mining them and yeah kind of yeah like taking the research and i think just like things like you know working out like fusion energy like fusion power stars and if you could somehow figure that out you know all of our power problems would be <laughs> yeah would be yeah. gone <laughs> yeah. what would what would you like to see from science in the next, <laughs> like through you know discoveries and and kind of Stuff that NASA are doing. In I mean, European space it'd agencies. be really good for my job if something to do with astronomy actually ended up like saving the world and our climate problems. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. That would be good. Yeah, I mean, because there's so there's so much out there that we just don't know, and there could be a like quite a simple solution. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think it's just I guess we just have to make sure that like the children of tomorrow. <laughs> um, I yeah, I guess obviously care about the world and want to make it a better place, but also keep asking questions and don't be afraid to kind of, you know, do, do science, even if it seems at that moment in time that it's just for the sake of science, like blue sky research, mm. because the, you know, yeah. there's really cool spin outs that will no doubt come from these things. That's a really nice way to, to finish off. Um, before we do, Tell us about your um, the outreach programs and stuff that where we can kind of find information about this and, and stuff like that. Okay, so um, so our well, I work with a mobile planetarium usually going out into schools, and that's called the uh, Sotten Astrodome. Um, but uh, we also have a, a how, nice. How does that work? Just out of interest, it's <laughs> kind of like a pop up astro. Yeah, yeah, it's just inflates basically. Cool. So it's just like a big inflatable igloo. Yeah. And then we have like a projector and a spherical mirror, so it all just projects onto the ceiling. Um, so we tour that around schools, um, but one of the new projects is actually out of our solar environmental physics group, and they investigate the aurora on the Earth and on uh, planets like Jupiter and Saturn, and they're actually, well, they're investigating the aurora with a view to, like, figuring out how um, the magnetic field strength of the Earth and the Sun and Earth connection works, and that's actually really important for things like satellites and GPS, because if there was a big solar flare, mm. they would be impacted. So they have this thing called um, the Aurora Zoo, where you can actually analyse data of Aurora, and you're basically just saying what shape you think it, the Aurora looks like in this image, um, which might seem quite easy, but it, it's not something a computer can do. So we actually want like general public citizens to help us with our data analysis, because people are much more look, uh, people are much better at looking at shapes and figuring out what they are. Yeah, so than I guess there's computers. just like you said, so much data to go through. Yeah, and we have to kind of figure out what it looks like. How does that? How does what we just say? Oh, it looks like a straight line with a 
So uh, there's di- there is like a tutorial on there which takes uh-huh. you through it all. Like one of them's called chocolate sauce. Okay. <laughs> so it's just like the the Rorik is kind of like spinning a bit like if you put chocolate sauce in milk or whatever. Um, and then there's other ones which are basically just called arc. So you just see like the aurora, it which is like, um, you know, like the green light that you would see if you were looking at it, kind of just arcing around on the, the on the background of like a dark sky. So they have this camera which is just looking at a very small part of the sky in uh, Tromso in Norway. Oh. And it, I guess it's always looking at the same patch of sky. So you're always trying to, well, as scientists trying to figure out what, how, why the magnetic field is changing um, uh, at that point over the top of the Earth, basically. And by looking at the shape, that's the only way we can really do that. Mm. So we need help. So yeah, so, Aurora Zoo. <laughs> Aurora, and that's just a Google Aurora Zoo. Yeah, Google Aurora Zoo should hopefully end up yeah, at it. Cool. Well, that sounds important because if there is a big solar flare, <laughs> all this technology is going to be knocked out, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But again, there's not really much... If the solar flare's coming, we can't really do much to stop it. Oh. But we can take... Um, well, if we understand the relationship better, then we can obviously make predictions and maybe make sure that any GPS satellites are kind of defended in certain ways before we put them up there that's just paint them all white like you said just reflect yeah. it <laughs> well, no that might mess things up a bit then because their orbits will go all over the oh, place no. <laughs> they'll start crashing into each other well i'll paint my house white there yeah. you go <laughs> might, might save me <laughs> not sure Sadie, thank you so much for coming on Stories. it's been awesome thank thanks you a lot. thanks and there we go thanks so much for listening wherever you are Oof. we talked about some pretty big things there i think Uh, It's just quite nice, though, to think about the bigger picture sometimes and everything that's out there rather than just, you know, in your own little world. Um, In fact, we were just saying on the way out that it seems that more and more people are getting interested in science and everything astronomy-wise. There's more news stories, uh, and I think it's good. I think it's good for us all to look up and think about our place in the universe. Um, And I really love the work that she's doing down there with the kids, uh, and just getting people interested in science seems to be, like, a definite plus. Thanks so much for listening, folks. We'll see you again.